Father, thanks for the privilege this morning of meeting, of uh, giving us a night's rest and, and stirring us so that we might get to see another day this side of heaven. And for your purposes, we hope. Of uh, The reason that we breathe, the reason that we, we live is to uh, reflect the God who made us. And we pray, Father, that our time together this morning would be such a time that would stir us and remind us that we are yours and we are to live for you. Take us where we are, Father, and we're, we're grateful for that, that uh, there weren't requirements before we could come to your feet. But take us now and, uh, and make your name famous, however you choose to do that. May we be uh, willing subjects in your kingdom. So we commit our time to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Scott Coy. Uh, I get to serve here at Watermark doing a number of different things. And, and this is one of my highlights. This is one of the things that I enjoy most, getting to uh, share with men about the, the excitement and the, uh, the adventure of following Christ. And in this, this fall's agenda, you know, we're working through this, what, I've, what I'm finding to be a really, really helpful uh, book. I like the way they're laying things out. Or that, uh, we're challenged to look at things from different perspectives, first the theology and then the application of that theology, which is really important. But we're on that subject of knowing God. And knowing who God is, and I understand Blake took a few good swings at the Trinity last week, and, and we chuckled earlier because I'm thinking of anything that is difficult to teach, and sometimes hard to, to make exciting to the listener, it's that very, very complicated understanding of uh, God as he expresses himself in three persons. Well, my opportunity this morning is to talk about how great and how good God is. But I find that pretty interesting because... How do we know anything about God to begin with? I think this is where we lag behind as men in our pursuit of following hard after Christ. That our vision of who God is and who our Heavenly Father is truly, truly affects our devotion. Because we, are, we know that our first ideas of God, our first concepts of God that we get are from our earthly fathers. And for some of us, that was great. But for many, it left a very neutral to negative perspective of what a father is like. And then those unfortunate folks that don't even have a father, earthly father in their lives, come into the whole concept of God being a heavenly father as a what? Very much the feeling of being... Uh, absent, or being isolated, or even abandoned. So that when we talk about God being a heavenly Father, they a lot of times go, no, that's not my image of God. So where do we get our picture of God accurately? Uh, C.S. Lewis, when he was trying to describe it some 70 years ago, 60 years ago, he wrote uh, the, the series Chronicles of Narnia. Many of you have Read them, some perhaps read them to your children, but you've certainly heard of them. But in that, in those chronicles, what he was trying to do for his nieces and nephews was to describe who God is. So that it would put them in a place where they would, with wonderment, 
pursue this God. And so he painted him as this great lion. Handsome. A great key figure. I'd read it to my kids, and, and they'd curl up in the chair because it'd be so exciting because Anselm was on the prowl. He was on the move. He was a powerful lion, but at times could be gentle. And so Lewis tried desperately to paint this picture. This is a god. He wasn't a teddy bear. He wasn't a Santa Claus. He wasn't a safe animal, but he was God. And where does he get those pictures? Well, I suggest to you today that we get that our image of God, our perspective of God, from three ways. First way is in his declarations. I say this is, when I say the declarations, I mean the scriptures. I literally had hundreds of passages to choose from to, to point this out to you, but I chose Psalm 104.1 for the reason that it includes one of the adjectives that we used this morning. And he proclaims about himself, says, Oh Lord, my God, you are very great. We learn from the scriptures what God is like. So if you don't spend time in the scriptures, if you don't know your scriptures, then you cannot know who your God is. It's that simple. That's where we find out what he, his powers and his strengths and his range and his care and his concern and, and the whole nine yards. We learn it from the scriptures. But not only there, not only do we find it there, we also find it from his actions. This is a great way to study your scriptures sometime, and I encourage you to, to venture in on a study like this. They go through the Bible, and every time you read a chapter, answer the question, what does this tell me about my God? If you look at God in the Old Testament, you see incredible detail. And you get this picture of this very powerful God, who in Genesis 1 created it, the world, with a spoken word. So we see his creative ability, but then we see his compassion and that he would create us to enjoy his creation. And then, but they end of chapter two, chapter three, we see God's justice and that he is not going to permit sin in his creation and fellowship. And then you go through chapter by chapter, we learn things about God. We see him as a great and mighty God. We get a confusing God. We see him uh, with the flood in Noah. And then we see him return in Genesis 12, where he says, I'm going to redeem the people. Even though you've rebelled, rebelled, I'm going to bring from a nation. I'm going to start with a man. I'm going to build a nation. And out of that nation, I'm going to bring in a Savior. We see this picture in the Old Testament. You want to see a great picture of God. Look at God, God incarnate in the New Testament. Why do we look at Jesus? We look at Jesus to understand what our God's like. You know, he gave up many of the heavenly attributes so that he could humble himself and take on the form of a man. Those scriptures that we read, that's what he has done. He has given things up, turned them over for a season that he might come down here and live amongst men. And then ultimately we know what he did. He showed what it really means to love somebody. So we see a God who is mighty in judgment and creation. This awesome God who cares about his creation. And we get this whole picture just from the actions of the scriptures. Third way that we know anything about God is from his creation. Nature itself. Uh, a couple quick passages there. Isaiah 6.3 says the whole earth is filled with his glory. Romans 1.20 says this. Since the creation of the 
of the world, his invisible attributes, which are his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly uh, understood through what was made, so that they are without excuse. He's talking about the people. So what if they hadn't heard the gospel? He said, I've made known to the whole world just by creation. The order of creation, the beauty of creation, the power of creation. You've got to know that there's someone behind it. And this is the God of the Bible. I'd also offer to you a great study, and I'll leave it for Todd to do some Sunday morning, because I think it's fascinating in that whole idea that man is made in the image of God. Have you ever pondered that? That there is something about you and I that reflects the God who created us. You know, the trouble is we spend a lot of energy trying to make God in our image and design him to be the person or this God figure that we want. But the truth is he is who he is. He has told us who he is in the scriptures. But he's also told us that he has made you and me after his own image. So that there are certain qualities about us, certain characteristics about us that reflect the Godhead. And that's where we get this picture. And what do we get? What is the picture? The picture is this, that God is both great and he's good. That's where we, that's where we end up. When we summarize the whole thing, we say, well, what, is, what is great about God? Well, if we listed the attributes, and uh, Rick Wisner wanted me to take a minute on every attribute this morning, and uh, we decided that uh, they weren't going to give me that much time. But if we did, we'd be here for a long time. But let me suggest some of the great things. Guys, it's important to know this stuff because knowing this theology affects the way you live your lives. I'll give you an example. We know that he's omnipresent, that he's everywhere present. We know that he's omniscient, that he knows everything, our deepest thoughts, our groanings, our dreams, our aspirations. We, We know that he's holy. We know that he's immutable, which means he never changes. We know that he is sovereign. That he's ultimately in control of everything that goes on, either by direct will or permissive will. That God does not let go of his creation, stand back and go, whoa, that's out of control. And it's knowing that theology, though, that controls the way you live life. That you think that you're spiraling out of control and that, that God doesn't know what's going on with our government or what's going on in the world. And so we live in a sense of hopelessness. Until you go to the scriptures, you look at your God and your God says, I got it under control. You see, understanding God of the scriptures brings both peace and purpose. And so we drive you as leaders and as is you're leading whatever group of influence you have, you drive people towards knowing who God is so that that controls who they become. Because everything else is built on shifting sand. Because your vision of what you're supposed to be or what you'd like to be, if it's some image that you've created, will eventually be washed away by a storm. But as we build who we are based on the theology, based on the Bible then we stand, we stand really firm. So we know that he's great, but because he's great and he's powerful and he can create things by speaking them into existence, I mean, these things ought to stagger you. And you start understanding the universe, you ought to be awed at how great and big God is. And then we say he's good. But what makes God good? We can certainly see that he's great. He is good for this reason, man. He chose to enter into his creation 
to save us. That's why God's good. He's not good because he makes a business deal go through or he makes you healthy when you've been sick. Or, Yeah, that's wonderful. That's kindness. But God is good because he entered into his own creation to save it. I love this stuff in Romans. You should all be students of the book of Romans. If you, if you don't know another book well from chapter 1 to chapter 16, you need to know Romans because it is a condensed theology. It, is, it tells you everything you need to know about God. But in the heart of that, in chapter 5, he talks about God's goodness. And he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of the cross, he loved us. What makes God good? That he would mess with knuckleheads like us who have lived in rebellion and has chosen to come in and redeemed us, reconciled us to his Father, satisfied us, Satisfied us. He's good. He's great. And he's good. So we ask, what's the proper response to all of that? Well, the proper response to a God that is both great and good is this word we call worship. And we have been on a mission since uh, we've been together as a group here at Watermark. And uh, from the time that Brett preached a sermon on worship in the first couple of years we were together, and he started that little phrase, have a great week of worship. And what he was trying to communicate to us in his time, and did very well, and did very well, is that uh, worship has the idea of the way we live life. In adoration, in response to a great and good God. And the thing is, the more you know that God is great and God is good, then the more you want to worship him. The more you want to give him your all. You want to commit all that you are, your time, your energy, your resources, your life. To him. That's worship. It's pretty interesting because I will tell you that we all worship something. I don't think we worship God well enough. I don't. So I would, you know, I always kind of look in the mirror and say, well, if it's good for me, it's probably good for you. But the truth is that we could do a better job of worshiping because our hearts are divided. Because trust me, guys, we worship something. And if you don't know, if you can't identify what you worship... Give me five minutes with your checkbook and your calendar, your, you know, your TV log. And I'll help you discover what you worship. But what God wants to do is to take that adoration for the things of this world and turn those things to him. I ran into uh, a old young life kid uh, a couple of weeks ago. This guy's in his early 40s. He's got his... Texas shirt on, and he's carrying his orange phone, and all he wants to do is talk about his college team. Well, he's been out of college for over 20 years, but that seems to be a big part of his focus. And I asked him how he was doing in his spiritual life. He's, man, I, I, I read that Bible a few times a week, and I pray almost every day. Great. So how does that compare with your love for your school? Your, with, or tell me what's going on down at Texas. And he knew all, everything was going on. He knew who was hurt, who was playing, what the opposition was. And I go, that gives me a great idea. That's a great picture of what worship is, except I need to flip it. This token idea of, of giving God ten minutes and giving some item of devotion, I go, that's what devotion is. So if I could pick up worship, which, this is the good part about having all guys in a group. Because sometimes football illustrations are lost on mixed audiences. 
or even uh, worse, uh, frowned on. But consider these items as an avid football fan. And if we could transfer those to our full devotion of Christ. Let's look at a couple of these. We'll throw them up. First of all, the avid football fan is engaged. He is, he is totally in the game when the game's on. He's not compartmentalized. He doesn't make it a token thing. He makes it his life. You know, guys that play fantasy football, I've got one in my uh, family. But I must admit, I was one of the first fantasy football guys out there. We did it where we had yellow pads on Monday morning, and we'd meet for coffee and go over the scores from the newspaper. We've since kind of moved the technology along a little bit. But these guys, they know what's going on. They're engaged in their endeavor. So secondly, the, the avid football fan is emotional. They live and breathe this stuff. They emote. They let you know when they're happy. They let you know when they're sad. But they are there every play. And I think as followers of Christ, are we there every play? So he's analytical. The avid football fan knows what's going on. He knows his opposition. He knows what his team can run. He knows what's going on. And I question, do we know the nuances of living the Christian life? Do you know how powerful your words are in the office? Do you know the skills of reconciliation? Do you know the kindness of bringing hope to people in your surroundings that are broken and needing an encouraging word? Do you know the nuances like a good football fan knows his team? I see he's demonstrative. He expresses what's important to him. You know, he's focused. You ever seen a, a guys that are fresh out of college watching their team play again on Saturday and they all get together? I mean, they are into it. And it's fun to watch. And there's nothing evil about it. But I'm just saying that if we brought that same kind of intensity to falling heart after Christ, wow. Well, I'd say he's, this, this football fan is unashamed. He doesn't back down any chance. He gets to tell you about his team. So that's what worship is. Do you back down when you have the chance to tell people about Jesus? Is it, is it pursed on your lips? Are you ready to roll? I guarantee you these guys that love their football teams, they're ready to talk about them. You can talk about anybody in the airport. They can talk about the football just that quickly. I said he's unashamed. This football player will wear, the, the fan will wear the colors and the shirts and the hats and the whole nine yards. And the question is, are we wearing Christ colors? That's worship. When people see us, do they see the God who loves us? And I offer you guys, the more you embrace the God of the Scriptures, the more you will wear His colors. Love to go there. He's faithful. You know, he's just, he doesn't, circumstances, he doesn't give up on his team. He's prepared. And I ask if we're prepared and he's intentional. Well, you got a couple of great pictures here of what this looks like in the Scriptures. you got a picture in uh, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. This is what worship looks like. Do we have Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 there? It says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. You know what this, this is a description of? In Isaiah, I would hope that you would know it. 
This is part of knowing your Bible. Isaiah 6. This is a picture of Isaiah being drawn into the very presence of God. And this is what he's seen. And then I said, when he sees these angels, all this stuff that's going on in the room that God is in. He goes, woe is me for I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. That his, because he got a real picture of what God is, he is blown away. He is no longer thinking God's his pal or he's the big guy in the sky or the big coach. Or all that other nonsense that we have attached to the God of the scriptures. He is blown away to the fact that he goes, I am absolutely unworthy to be here. He says, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, and he take from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? And then he said, here am I, send me. A worshipful response to a real picture of God. We could go into a lot more stuff. Would love to do that. But you got this picture of the God of the Scriptures who is great and good. He's powerful and yet gentle and cares more about us than we'll ever care about anybody. And as this God, He invites us in to live a life of worship. And I will contend with you this morning. That the better you know who God is, the more your life will reflect in worship. There's always that struggle of really being able to communicate who he is. And listen, I'm going to be fired after this morning for going long anyway. So let's go to our groups. Have a great day of worship. See you next week.